0: Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Dominican Father Brian Milady is in the house. If you'd like to talk to Father, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1- And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson, handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may get to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Thursday, Father Brian Mullady, how are you?
2: Fine, thank you.
1: You know, um, times have changed, and... Uh, from times when I was a youth and even more further back when you were a youth, um, I think people's overall appreciation for um, art and the arts was a little greater to a certain extent, certainly in classical art, than it is today. And I'm afraid that the overwhelming majority of the last couple of generations you know, couldn't identify Frangelico outside of a bar.
2: Yes. Actually, I think a lot of people are not aware of Beato Frangelico. Uh, And I wanted to do that today. For one thing, his feast day is coming up. And for another thing, he's one of my Dominican brothers. Mm -hmm. And for another thing, his art is just absolutely breathtaking. Uh, Frangelico was born in central Italy in the 15th century. And he grew up in a secular profession. Basically, he was a part of one of the great schools of art of the the Renaissance. But at a certain point in time, he decided he had a religious vocation, too. And so he joined the Dominican Priory at Fiesole in Florence, which was a reformed priory at the time. And he occupied various offices there, but in addition to occupying these various offices after he was ordained to the priesthood, he also had a very active career of painting. And there are many places he paint, where he painted. Probably the principal when, where you can find much of his art today is in the Dominican Priory in Florence, San Marco, where St. Antoninus, who was a great reformer of our order, asked him to decorate the cells of all the friars with frescoes. and these are absolutely magnificent pieces of art today, and justly famous. He also, because of this work, was called to Rome by Pope Eugenius IV. and the Pope was so, and Pope Nicholas V was so impressed with his holiness that he asked him to decorate his private chapel with frescoes also. And this is also one of the wonderful works today. In uh, other places, he decorated, uh, you know, paintings, cathedrals, and the Pope actually wanted to make him the Archbishop of Florence. But he deferred to uh, St. Antoninus, whom he considered to be the father of the reform of the Dominicans, Now, John Paul II, who was so interested in art, decided to beatify him. He'd always been known as Beato Angelico, but without formal process on the part of the Church. And one of the difficulties was that that not that much was known about his life or his virtues. And John Paul II used the famous line that is connected to the canonization of St. Thomas, in St. Thomas's case, they, when they came up to discuss the virtues, they said, uh, quote, uh, miracles, I should say. They said, um, tot miraculous quote, are there is many miracles in Thomas Aquinas' life as there are articles in the Summa. Well, John Paul II adapted this to say, there is many miracles in Fra Angelico's life as, as there are his paintings. Mm-hmm. And, in the uh, process of the canonization or the beatification, he actually quotes the Second Vatican Council, which says, "Very rightly, the fine arts are considered to rank among the noblest expressions of human genius. This judgment applies especially to religious art and to its highest achievement, which is sacred art, and he finds uh, for Angelico a marvelous example of this. Now, interestingly enough, Pius XII had also given several allocutions on Parangelico, and one of the things he says is, on the one hand, his purpose is to teach in his paintings the truths of faith convincing human minds by the very force of their beauty. On the other, he aims to lead the faithful to the practice of Christian virtues, by setting before the beautiful and attractive examples. And because of the way he painted, as well as his perfection of life, he lives as a religious. Pius XII says, For Angelico's brush, therefore, gives life to a kind of model human being, not unlike the angels, whom all is balanced, serene, perfect, a model Christian, rarely found perhaps in the circumstances of earthly life, but still to be offered for the imitation of the people. So the idea that art is a harmonious attempt on human beings to order the world the way God orders the world, and that this finally includes our infusion into grace, is very much captured in the life of Beato Angelico, and also in all sacred art, which is worthy of the name, and I highly recommend, if any of you ever make a trip to Italy, or if you wanted to do this, there are plenty of books on the subject. The internet has some very good, like uh, you know, representations or reproductions of his paintings. That you make a trip to San Marco in Florence, and you look at all these little cells which were not any bigger than a place for a bed and a desk, but have these absolutely glorious frescoes painted on them of all kinds of scenes from the Gospels um, and other places. So I myself have appreciated meditating on these in San Marco. Frangelico is buried in the Minerva in Rome, which is the provincial house of the Roman province of the Dominicans. And he has a marble tomb there, and I actually attended his beatification process there, in the, uh, which would have been in the 80s. So we have to thank God for all these various examples to us of the Gospels, and uh, especially those who, through the fine arts, can communicate something which is almost as sublime as heaven. The reason he's called Angelico is because his representations of the angels were so wonderful. And you can see those again in a number of his paintings. So Beato Angelico, pray for us.
1: You know, it's interesting that we don't see, and and I'm sure photography has something to do with it, but we don't see the glorious stylistic paintings you know, of antiquity done by modern artists at all.
2: Yeah, well, part of that is because of their theory of art. I remember that uh, in the late 60s, we had these two architects from Cal Berkeley come to our House of Studies in Oakland to describe how wonderfully they had remade this traditional Baroque church in Switzerland. And so they had the before picture with all the frescoes and the Baroque angels all over the walls and the ceilings. Then they had the after picture, which was they were all into kind of factory sterility. So they had just painted the whole thing white, taken out all those things, and hung up banners. (laughs) That was their idea of sacred art. I mean, people used to spend a lot of time and a lot of money on this. And the church, as you know, was quite a powerful patron of the arts Mm -hmm. and especially in decorating monasteries or cathedrals or or churches so it does help us to think about god and that's the most important
1: thing yes no doubt well done art does lift the heart and mind to god without a doubt It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Father Brian Mullady is in the house. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question... Call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or... Send us an email to OpenLine at EWTN.com.
1: You know, if you enjoy EWTN Bookmark Brief with Doug Keck, you can receive weekly emails, including a short video blog. It features the author giving a short synopsis of their work in his or her own words. Simply visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. Three lines taken, three lines open. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833 288 EWTN that's 833 288 3986. First up today is Barbara. She is a first-time caller in Loveland, Colorado, listening on Sirius XM channel 130. Barbara, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program.
3: You welcome. Thank you for uh, taking my question.
1: What can we do for you?
3: I would like to ask you why, you know, uh, we are not God, so we cannot bless people. You know, we can say, oh, may God bless you, but I can say, oh, I bless you. And why, right in the church we pray, we, uh, you know, uh, in God, we say, we uh, we bless you, we adore you, we give you thanks. Who are we to bless God? I mean, our blessing is nothing, first we are not supposed to bless anybody because we're not God. So I like to understand why we pray, we bless you, because, I mean, it's God, you know. What our blessing is, and I understand, we adore you, we give you thanks, but why do we
1: bless you? How do we bless God, Father, as
2: people? Well, uh, I think you're having a problem with the English language, frankly. Uh, Priest blesses people in the name of God, all right? Uh, You and other people can bless other people in the name of God. But we who are baptized Christians, in our praise of God, we obviously don't make him more blessed. What we do is that we recognize his glory and his power and his blessedness on our own. So we praise you, we bless you, we glorify you, we glorify you. Um, we're, we're doing this from a human point of view. Uh, that's how we do it.
1: Thanks, Barbara. We appreciate the phone call today. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Bill is in the great state of Kansas listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Bill, you're on with Father Brian Maledi.
4: Uh Thanks for taking my call. Uh, this is pretty involved. I'll try and make it simple. My question is, what's a parish family do for justice, we've been bullied by the priests. We've got three le- three certified letters. He wants us out of the parish. So we're not leaving. And uh, I did two terms on the parish council. Uh, we counted money, offertory money, every week. Uh, my wife is involved. She was a reader and everything. We met with the vicar, and what I ended up with taken away from that was, well, we have a good old boys network in the priesthood. But there's got to be some way a family can get answers and justice out of the, out of the diocese. What is it? Uh, what,
2: what's the issue involved?
4: Well, I'm not sure. Uh, I why, did he a, ask, a,
2: why, why did he ask you to leave?
4: I, I'm, I'm, I'm not an automatic yes man when we were on the council, so I pushed back on some items. And he wanted to get this big organ in the church. And I, I uh, went to a lot of people and asked them if they did you want the organ or not. Ninety-five percent of the people I talked to didn't want it. So when we voted on the organ, I, vote, I was the only one to vote no. I think mm-hmm. that was the start of it, probably.
2: Well, you were the loyal opposition to something he wanted to do. Uh, people need loyal oppositions. But of course, if he has uh, convinced them that it's to their advantage to vote yes, then uh, you really have no recourse. Your only recourse is just to resign from the parish council uh, if you want to, and uh, just try to um, you know, say your prayers and go to mass and do what normal Christians do in parishes. As to getting answers of the diocese, I have no no secret to that. It depends on the diocese, it depends on the priests. There's a lot involved in all that, and I don't have the secret. I'm in a religious order. So, there's not much I can tell you, except that, you know, the, the church isn't the priest's. And so the important thing is the sacraments are offered, and you just go back to being a normal Christian. He can't order you to leave the parish because of that.
1: So, Father, I have it on good authority. It's been told to me that you priests are humans. Oh, gosh. <laughs>
2: you, should, you should have grown. I entered when
1: I was 19.
2: I lived with priests since I was 19. Oh, my goodness, you should, uh, probably a little more neurotic, some of us, than more normal people. (laughs) Um, It's very interesting, believe me. Uh, And you you often don't get answers to things that happen. You really don't know why they happened. But uh, no one will tell you. So eventually what you do is you say, well... This is God's will. He's There's something he has in mind. I don't really know what it is. I may not know this side of heaven. But there's something he has in mind. And after you've said what your piece, where you're trying to fight whatever's happening, then you just have to let the thing go. And I think that's probably true in many bureaucracies, too.
1: Very good. God bless you, Bill. We'll keep you in our prayers, to be yes. sure. 288 EWTN is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Gino is in Polson, Montana. Um, watch or listening rather to um, EWTN Radio today on Divine Mercy Radio. Gino, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hey guys, I got
2: a quick question. I understand Martin Luther was an Augustinian
1: priest. Why don't we refer to him
2: as Father Martin Luther in the Catholic Church? Well, because for one thing, he left. He would have hated it. <laughs> he left the priesthood, basically, because he didn't believe in as sacrificial priesthood. Uh, no, he was uh, also a doctor, so they used to refer to him as Dr. Luther, but he would have hated it if we called him Father after he left the Augustinians. You know, he was not into all those things, he didn't like sacrifice in the Eucharist and that sort of thing.
1: Thanks, Gino. We appreciate that call today. We've got plenty of time for your phone calls and a couple of open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833-288- 288 Next stop is Houston, Texas. Stephanie is a first-time caller listening on the TuneIn Radio app. Stephanie, you're on with Father Brian Milady.
3: Hello. Um, my question is, when it comes to, like, as an adult forgiving childhood abuses, um, how do you know when you've gotten to the point where you've actually forgiven after praying about it and then if you have any books to recommend?
2: Oh gosh, how do you know? Is there a line you draw about forgiveness or not forgiveness? I think the spiritual part of forgiveness occurs when you're willing to pray for the person and of course you don't feel hatred every time you think about them. But obviously if you've been abused as a child, from what I understand, that never happened to me fortunately. But Um, you know, you carry it with you your whole life. So uh, as to the object of the abuse, the forgiveness would basically be to pray for them and to just let them be. Uh, Books, well, I can recommend to you any work by Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, as you know, in the 12 steps, one of the steps is that you sincerely forgive everyone and you also ask for their forgiveness sincerely whoever you may have offended because the thing is what they're trying to do is get you beyond that so that you can look at the good things in your life again and since the person the predator isn't around hopefully hopefully anymore uh, to just not to have you dwell on it anymore now I don't think that's a magical healing I don't think it ever totally does the trick for most people, unless they kind of experience a extraordinary grace of God to help them to do that. But you do have to let go of certain things in order to experience openness in your character so you can actually progress in your spiritual life. And I can tell you this from, not from abuse as a child, that's obviously a very extraordinary circumstance, but from, people, from when people have offended you as an adult, you know, if all you're doing is worrying about everybody who offended you, you're expending a lot of spiritual energy on things you can't change. Uh, you don't have to be re-offended. In other words, you're once bitten, twice shy. You don't give yourself into that situation again. But eventually you've got to just let it go and move on with life. Because it isn't worth it. Who are you hurting? You're only hurting yourself.
1: God bless you, Stephanie. Thank you so much for the question today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your questions at 833-288-3986. Christine is in San Antonio, Texas. Another first-time caller. Christine, you're on with Father Brian Milady.
3: Good evening, or good day. I was just asking, what's the right way on fasting?
1: What do
2: you mean by the right way? <laughs>
3: because my boyfriend said when you're supposed to fast, it's supposed to be like all day. And I told him, what and Frank, at the same time.
2: Well, the Catholic rules about fasting are, first of all, you don't do it, well, I think, before you're 18 or after you're 70. Because it's a symbol of penance. Uh, Secondly, two meals can't equal a principal meal. Uh, So this bread and water thing, except in religious orders that may have that as a part of their rule, is not a good idea. It's not a good idea for the laity, and it's not a good idea for anyone else. Because for one thing, when you fast, you get crabby. (laughs) And when you get crabby, you often take it out on innocent people. So, it, it, in other words, it keeps you from doing the good things you should be doing, virtue-wise, because you're tormenting your body. You don't have the energy uh, necessary to do the virtues of your state. But anyway, two meals can equal the principal meal. And, uh, you know, I lived in Italy for six years, and believe me, they wrote the law, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> A principal meal is pretty principal in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's it's a it's a symbol of penance more than anything. else.
1: God bless you, Christine. Thanks so much for calling us today. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's open line Thursday with Father Brian Milady.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio
1: Network. Congratulations going out to two of our longtime EWTN radio family members in the Republic of Texas. Sacred Heart Radio in Plainview is celebrating their 19th year with us this week. And St. Valentine Radio in Amarillo marks 17 years with EWTN with four stations in English and Spanish. Congratulations to Father George Ponley in Plainview, and Dale and Kathy Artho in Amarillo, from your friends here at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. We have an email from Rich. He says, In the Apostles' Creed, the line, He will come again to judge the living and the dead, seems to imply that judgment comes only at a future time, when he comes again. Do we not get judged during purgatory?
2: Uh, Okay, let's see now. There's two judgments. Uh, One is personal, and it's not just purgatory, it's at the hour of our death. But the other judgment is when the personal secret judgment is proclaimed to the entire assembled creation when uh, creation's purpose is fulfilled, and that's only when the number of the elect, however they may be. You know, Scripture describes it as 144,000, but that's just the numerology of the New Testament. It's a perfect number, basically. When it, All the people that should be justified are justified, and Christ himself will pronounce that And the whole assembled creation will know it, and they'll know both the secret goods of people who may have been considered not so good, and they'll also know the secret evil of people who may have been considered good. And that will add to the uh, sufferings of the uh, unjust, but to proclaim, despite difficulties, the perseverance of the just will also add to their glory. So, yeah, they don't, I don't know why they don't put the second judgment in. I assume because it wasn't a, a matter of debate or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But the second judgment is a part of the mystery because it's the final consummation of everything. So I would imagine that's why it's in the Apostles' Creed.
1: And people, uh, people fret over this, this final judgment a little bit from time to time. And if someone is redeemed and uh, they have a a, a good outcome to the disposition of their eternal soul, this general judgment is not going to cause them any problems, is it?
2: (laughs) No, the general judgment merely publishes this for the creation, uh, with Christ now reigning as the final Lord of history. Um, But again, it does add to the consternation of the wicked, because everybody knows their wickedness now. The symbol of creation knows it; they've been caught and proclaimed as evil, um, which adds to their suffering.
1: Carrie is in New Orleans, Louisiana, listening on Catholic Community Radio today. Carrie, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi.
3: Hi. Good afternoon. Um, I'm going to try to articulate this. I'm not too good at it, but so. Um, I remember learning in the Old Testament about God entering covenants with man, and at the covenants there was a sacrificial meal, and blood was shed. And um, the one where God was with Abraham, and um, the the animals were slain, and if I remember correctly, uh, God went through it, but Abraham was asleep at the time. So it was kind of left open... And I'm wondering if when Jesus shed his blood on the cross, did, was that like, did that fulfill that covenant with Abraham and he satisfied for us the, like, we didn't get the curse of the covenant because Jesus took the curse? And was that, is our meal at the Mass, the sacrificial meal um, that was, took place, should have taken place with Abraham? Like, is it all satisfied with Jesus and what he did?
2: Well, first of all, I have no awareness of Abraham being asleep during this. And the, the whole thing, he ate with the strangers, remember, when they came. Uh, he had hospitality for them. In fact, Sarah, remember when they heard her, Abraham was told that she was to be a with child, even though she was very old and barren. She gives the first history of a human laugh because it says she laughed right at this. But um, let's put it this way. All the covenants in the Old Testament are uh, unified in the covenant with Moses in the old law. And in that covenant with Moses, we have the various sacrifices of the temple and we also have in the Ten Commandments how we're supposed to treat others. That covenant assumes the love of God, as is seen in Deuteronomy, and it also uh, was violated almost in its initiation when the Jews were sacrificing, you know, to idols at the foot of the mountain while Moses was getting the tablets at the top. That covenant, however, looks forward to the new and eternal covenant in which, yes, you're right, Jesus fulfills that because the first covenant in itself did not give grace to the Holy Spirit. You could become a saint under the first covenant, but only by faith in the future Messiah, and you still were in the condition of original sin. But in the second covenant with Christ, uh, that Christ sends the Holy Spirit into our souls. So the new law of Christ, which is spoken of in St. Paul is primarily the grace of the Holy Spirit living in the heart of the Holy Christian. And the death, of course, which summarizes all sacrifices. Christ is both priest and victim on the cross. Uh, Remember, the veil of the temple is torn in two. There's no need for sacrifices anymore because he made it once and for all. And then the meal would be connected to it, the Last Supper. Um, As you know, Catholic... Uh, accounts of the Passion begin with the Eucharist and its institution, not the Garden. Protestant accounts tend to begin with the Garden because it it summarizes the whole thing, the Paschal event. So uh, when we're invited to take his body and drink his blood, we're invited to be a part of that covenant where he's both the priest and victim. So yes, it does fulfill the promises and the uh, practices of the Old Testament. But the primary covenant, it's true there was a covenant with Noah, with the rainbow, and there was a covenant with Abraham. Covenant even, in a sense, with Adam. But those covenants were all summarized in the in the Old Testament in the covenant with Moses.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833 833- Two eight eight three. Excuse me. Three nine eight six. Barbara is in the great state of Maryland, listening on the EWTN app. Barbara, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Thank you.
3: Um, I've been looking at the uh, first part of Genesis, where it says, "In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, you know, the earth was a formless wasteland." And I'm trying to, um, since I don't know the native language that it was written in. Does that mean that the description of before God started creating, there was a formless wasteland? Or does it mean when he began to create, it was a formless wasteland?
2: Uh, It's when he began to create. Because there is no before. It's, It's from nothing. So the first day is the day on which God, you know, basically created the general matter. But you have to be very um, careful about this text because the text of the Seven Days of Creation is later in a composition. It's the result of a priestly editor. And as a result, it's quite a beautiful but very deep metaphysical, uh, philosophical description of the Jews' idea of creation which is God is the author of creation, but he's not a part of it, as opposed to all pagan religions. And so uh, the seven days aren't seven calendar days, because for one thing, there's no sun created until Wednesday, I believe. They are actually saying that all of time is created by God, and so the week is considered to be a perfect unit of time. Within that unit of time, there is a hierarchy of creation. And that's what's described in the first, the formless void, then the sun and the moon, then the, everything else, the animals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and finally culminating in man and in the Sabbath rest. So you have a very tightly organized metaphysical treatment of what co- we would call cosmology or physics, not in the sense that God is trying to teach us scientific physics, but it's philosophical physics. So uh, the formless void, well, I mean, you know, today we have black holes and we have a you know, theory of relativity, relative matter, all those things. It is the material part, though. So it's a part of the creation itself. It doesn't preclude it. Does that mean there that would have to be something existing, before God's first act of creation. Whereas, in fact, God created everything from nothing.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Um, Dean writes in, When the church's dicastery has approved all miracles and a person is ready to be declared a saint, how do how do they decide what they will be the patron saint of. I have no idea. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I would assume that it's because of something in their life. So like St. Blaise, as you know, is the patron saint of throat ailments because he cured the person of the fishbone, I believe, caught in his throat. Uh, St. Michael, because he was led the, the warfare of heaven, would be considered to be the patron saint of policemen and soldiers. Uh, But I assume it's because of what some aspect in their life. If you read Wikipedia, if you believe Wikipedia, they'll often tell you why they're the patron saint of certain things. Um, And it's usually something from their life.
1: Uh, Maria wants to know if one spouse receives grace from the other spouse's works.
2: If one spouse receives grace, I'm not really sure what she's asking me. Uh, The couple are priests to each other. But you don't receive grace unless you're open to it, number one. And if you're in a state of mortal sin, you certainly wouldn't receive grace from the other. That's why to have a good marriage, it's necessary to be in the state of grace and also to nurture it by the sacraments, especially the Eucharist. Um, other than that, I, I yes, I would say, guardedly, that's true, provided the person's open to it and provided that they're not in a condition of mortal sin.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Um, we've touched on that. During this program, so I'm going to move on to a different question. Would there be a sacramental characteristic that will be visible to us in the next life, like the three levels of holy orders? Would they be visible? That's Rod. No, no. So, no, no prelates in heaven. Oh
2: no! Well, <laughs> they are always prelates, but they wouldn't their prelature wouldn't be visible to others. There's no reason to make it so uh, because the the sacraments have ceased then remember. Uh, There are no sacraments in heaven because sacraments are an outward side instituted by Christ to give grace. Now you see the reality. They were all oriented to. So all those people still, obviously the character remains. I'm still a priest, but there's no reason for me to manifest that to anybody else because my priesthood is done now. And the important thing is that we see God
1: so Timothy writes in, and he's, he's drawing on your experience as a young child, Father. When Paul was headed to trial before Caesar, would it really have been Caesar himself or just a magistrate or an appointee who heard cases?
2: Well, again, I don't know. Uh, I assume it was subject to the emperor's decree, because remember, as a citizen of Rome, he had a right to appeal, appeal to the emperor, and that's what he did. But I'm not sure who actually adjudicated that. Pro- I'm sure Caesar's decree signed, would have signed the death warrant. But as far as uh, who who defended him or who heard him or if the court involved Caesar, um, I I doubt that. But it could could be.
1: EWTN bookmarks Saturday afternoon, four thirty p.m. Eastern time. The Tan Resurrection book series, Father Robert Nixon has translated six small books from Latin manuscripts by famous medieval saints and authors, heretofore unavailable to the general public. The writings are inspiring and meant to be meditated deeply upon, and uh, he will talk to Doug Keck all about that this Saturday on EWTN Bookmark at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. We head now to the great state of Michigan. Stan is listening on Sirius XM channel 130 Stan you're on with father Brian Milady hi there say hey, I've got a question I've been wondering about here uh given the uh
4: the sinlessness of Jesus in his humanity would
2: he have experienced shame and humiliation as he hung naked on the cross you mean because it was naked yes he, he, because he naked. No, he, was no. Naked and, no, he wouldn't future. have experienced that because he was naked, no. Uh-oh, no. Uh-uh.
1: What about humiliation? Well, he probably conquered that by yes. becoming a human,
2: huh? <laughs> well, no, humiliation, uh, yes, but not shame. Uh, not shame of being naked. Uh, the fact that he was humiliated... Remember, Christ has the full gamut of all human emotions, but he has them in a perfect sense not an irrational sense so he certainly experienced uh, fear and also sorrow in the garden that could let him to sweat blood and he certainly would have experienced compassion on the cross remember whose heart is, you know, his heart, my heart is near breaking with sorrow uh, there are many many things that Christ would experience but not in the sense that he was guilty of them The shame at being naked comes from the original sin. And Jesus did not have the original sin. Nor was he sexually tempted, no matter what last temptation of Christ might say or whatever. (laughs) Uh, No, that's all um, people in the state of original sin. So, uh, no, uh, for certain of those things, he would not have experienced them. Regarding humiliation, though, yes, and remember... He was humiliated by the passers-by, and there were thousands of those. They were all in Jerusalem for Passover. And he was judged uh, unjustly by Pilate and his own people and condemned to death unjustly. And even Pilate knew he was condemning him unjustly. And all those things, he would have certainly felt them, that's for sure.
1: Bill says he's been listening to Catholic Radio and he hears people talking about novenas. What is a novena? All right, the original novena
2: ran from the Ascension till Pentecost. And it was the disciples gathered in prayer with Mary in the upper room, praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit. In these times today, when we have special needs or special intentions or a special devotion, we imitate the apostles in this by spending nine days in prayer. And the word for nine in Latin is from, the uh, word for novena comes from the word nine in Latin. So its origin is a special time of prayer, remembrance, and, and mostly connected to a certain mystery of our religion, not so much to forgiveness of sins, although people do are encouraged to go to confession during novenas. So the original novena was the nine days, and it refers to the nine days. And it can be for anything. I'm pretty sure in the life of Saint Isabel in Portland, Portugal, that uh, they were having a famine, and the people made a novena to Our Lady, and then ships arrived with food unmanned, according to the story, and driven by the Holy Ghost, they made a novena to the Holy Spirit. And so that's the origin, Portugal, of the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost festival.
1: George is in the great state of Pennsylvania, listening on Sirius XM Channel One Thirty. George, you're on with Father Brian.
2: Yeah, Father Brian, appreciate you taking my call. A quick question regarding the Assumption. I figured Mary was around sixty-eight when she when she was assumed to heaven. I based that on the fact that. She was 14 or 15, likely, when she was pregnant, and then 33 years of Christ's life, making her around 47, 48 when Christ died, and then living another 20 years would take her to about 68. So that's my first question. Do you think that sounds about right? And were there any witnesses to the assumption is my second question. Okay. Uh, Actually, I don't have any idea how old the Blessed Virgin was. As far as your calculation of... Fourteen thirty-three. that would uh, sounds good to me. I have no idea she, uh, there's any source that says she lived for 20 years after that. She certainly lived for a time after that. Uh, secondly, um, there were no witnesses to the assumption. The only description we have comes from John Damascene 600 years after the event. And it's more or less a theological description, and it was this, that when Mary died, now whether she died or not is a matter of debate, all right, but when she died, and she wouldn't have experienced a suffering death, remember, it it wouldn't have been a corrupting death, it would have been like Snow White getting the kiss, you know, eating the poisoned apple and having the rosy cheeks and all this stuff. The apostles were all miraculously transported to Jerusalem to mourn over her. They mourned over her. They sealed the tomb. But, of course, who wasn't there? Thomas. (laughs) So Thomas came late, and, of course, he wanted to see the body to be sure she was dead. But when they opened the tomb, they discovered it empty. And so they just assumed that she'd been granted this special privilege by our Lord to be taken to heaven in her body, a risen body, but there's no description of the uh, of the assumption any more than there is of the resurrection. As you know, they find the tomb empty. There's no description of the resurrection of Christ.
1: We head to Oklahoma. Brandon is listening on Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Brandon, you're on with Father Brian Malady.
4: Hi there. Uh, my question to you is. Uh... So, the, I mean, the the in John chapter 6, the Bread of Life discourse, Catholics believe that Jesus was literally saying for us to eat his, eat his body and drink his blood. Why do Protestant denominations think that it was symbolic when it literally says to amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you?
2: Well, for several reasons. Uh... First of all, because they think it's cannibalism. They think it's too realistic to say that. But interestingly enough, as you know, when our Lord said the words, there were people that found them offensive because the Jews didn't obviously practice cannibalism, right? And even the drinking of blood of animals was forbidden. So Christ, however, doesn't let up Modify anything he says, but he doubles down and he uses verbs like chew, you know, and things like that. Um, The second reason is that there was a long discussion about whether Christ could be in heaven and also on earth in a piece of bread. And uh, most Protestants did not accept that it was possible philosophically for him to be in heaven in his risen body, and also on earth, in other words, in two places at once. But they don't understand the miracle. They don't understand what transubstantiation's about. According to what we believe, that's changed into Christ's body in heaven uh, with everything but the quantity, the dimensions of the quantity that are present in heaven. So the way I often like to put it is There aren't 10 million different bodies of Christ around the world with consecrated hosts. There's one body of Christ in heaven who's equally and substantially present in 10 million different places so that we might partake of it. And those are the primary reasons. They also didn't accept the idea of the Mass as a sacrifice because that would, of course, have led them to a sacrificial priesthood, which would have led them to the idea that there were special people. And Luther didn't like that, as you know. So, and, and all following him pretty much in more or less uh, fashion went along with that.
1: Father, would you leave us with a blessing?
2: May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen.
1: Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Mullady, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. We're back at it tomorrow with our very own vice president of theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, on EWTN's Open Line Friday. Until we get together tomorrow with Colin, God bless.